0: We're wrapping up a three-week series that we've been in. This is week three of the series called Gifted. And we've been talking about spiritual gifts. And maybe for some of you, this whole subject about spiritual gifts or the Holy Spirit in general is exciting. And you're thinking, yes... Finally, we're talking about something exciting in the Holy Spirit, and, and, and isn't this kind of where all the fun is, and this is where the, the, the excitement is at, and maybe others of you get kind of nervous when you hear about the Holy Spirit, because maybe the only times you've heard about the Holy Spirit are those moments when you're you know, flipping channels on late night TV, and you come across a TV preacher who claims the Holy Ghost is doing this or doing that, and it all seems sort of strange to you. And so maybe when you think about, okay, wait, the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts, why? Why talk about this? And isn't this, maybe this is sort of extra credit work for those who really want to follow Jesus. Uh, My hope is by the end of this series, by the end of today, that you'll see that this isn't extra credit stuff. This is part of the life that we've been called into. Uh, In fact, in the first week, we talked about how really a spiritual gift is God's grace coming to a visible expression in you And then through you to others. Let's put that up and and we'll look at the sentence one more time. A spiritual gift is God's grace coming to a visible expression in you. Did you know that if you are in Christ, you have been graced? God's grace abounds to you. In fact, this text that we've been using in Romans 12... Paul is linking two ideas with words that sound very much alike. Charis, grace, and charisma, gift. And he's trying to say, look, it is God whose grace is at work in you that that shows up in these gifts that He's given you. In other words, the Christian life doesn't end the moment you say yes to Jesus. In fact, it's just beginning. And God's grace is, is... is coming up in you, coming up as a, in a, as a visible expression in you, and it shows up in these gifts. Why? So that God's grace can go through you to others. Did you know that a spiritual gift is not a gift you're meant to use up or keep? In fact, you might say that a spiritual gift is, in one sense, uh, meant to be re-gifted. Because it comes to you so that it can come through you. And then we talked a little bit about the difference between a gift and a talent. Now isn't this just talents? Isn't this just something you do real good and something that she does real good? No, listen, a talent, and here's maybe the, the litmus test. A talent, when you do it, what people see is you. But a spiritual gift, when you are moving in it, what people see is Jesus. In a spirit, when a spiritual gift is at work, it's God's grace rising up in you, coming to a visible expression, so that when people are there, what they receive, what they see, is not you, but Jesus. That's how you know the grace of God has risen up in you in this way. And then last week, as we talked about three of the, uh, the gifts on the list, uh, we also began by saying, look, a spiritual gift must be cultivated as we cooperate with God's grace at work in our lives. In other words, just saying that it's God's grace that comes to a visible expression in us doesn't mean that we sort of sit on our hands and kind of say, Okay, well, I'm waiting. God, I'm waiting. Is it going to happen? Guess I haven't been graced. No. We talked about Adam in the Garden of Eden and how what God creates, He calls us to cultivate. What God creates, He calls us to cultivate. So He made this garden and He says, Okay, even in this created world, Adam, you cultivate it. And I think there's a parallel here where all of us in this new creation sort of life, God's grace has made you a new creation. Your life has become this new garden. And yet, even in this garden, God says, Hey, would you join me in this? Would you cultivate what I have planted in you? Would you begin to develop and devote yourself to these things? And so that's a big reason we're doing this series. We're doing this series not to sort of say, okay, well, some people are gifted and other people aren't. In fact, quite the opposite. We're doing this series so we can say, all right, listen, if part of what it means to be the people of God means that His grace abounds to us in ways that show up as these gifts and graces, then I want to give myself to it. I want to develop it. I want to cultivate it. Why? Because then the church will be flourishing. Listen, the way that a church grows up into maturity is not because of one person. It's not because of two people. It's not because of a staff and it's not because of a leadership team. It's because every person says, where is God's grace at work in me? And how can I cooperate with it so that other people's lives will be blessed? That's the reason we're doing this series. So turn with me over to Romans chapter 12. This is our text. We're going to tackle the last three gifts and then answer a question that, that someone emailed me this week and said, well, how do, we, how do I know what these gifts are? So we're going to work through these last three in Paul's list in Romans 12, and then we'll, we'll get to that question, which I know is at the front of everyone's mind. All right, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. In week one, we talked about what a remarkable phrase that is. Because we're used to being members of something else together. You and I belong to this club or to this gym or to this... But do you know, church is not, something, is not an organization that you belong to. It's an organism where you belong to each other. So your passiveness affects me. Or your devotedness to say, Lord, let your grace abound in me, blesses us. Because you belong to me and I belong to you. And some of you are like, really bummed about that right now. (laughs) Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, then in in proportion to our faith or according to the faith. If if if, If service in our serving and the one who teaches in his teaching and the one who exhorts in exhortation. And then today, the one who contributes in generosity. Giving. When you think about giving as a spiritual gift, this again might be one of those exhale moments where you say, oh good, so this is something that other people can do because I can be bad at giving and justify by saying it's not my gift. (laughs) And I'll let other people give. In fact, most of the time we, we tend to think of giving as something that happens out of surplus. And so if you were to be honest and you look at your life and say, well, I don't have a lot of surplus right now. So God must not be gracing me with the gift of giving. Praise God. Now let's, go take, now let's go take that vacation this year. Really, the way that this is described is the one who gives is really the one who shares. The gift of giving is really about the one who shares. Now when you say it that way, then all of a sudden you start to think of all the stories in the Bible of people who shared even when what they had was not much. You remember the story? If you grew up in church, maybe you heard it with a flannel graph board. Of the widow, and Elijah comes to her and says, I need you to bake me something. And she's like, All I got, I was just getting ready to bake my last meal, and my son and I were gonna die. What a wonderful day. And he says, No, you need to bake me some bread. And he's just thinking, this dude is a heartless prophet. And then you know what happens. She bakes it for him, and then what begins to happen, all of a sudden, her, she doesn't run out. She has all this stuff, and it doesn't... And you think, wow, that's amazing. Hey, that sounds like another story I've heard somewhere, Or didn't some kid give Jesus his lunch, and it was just a couple of loaves of bread, and a few fish, and Jesus began to bless it, and broke it, and, and, and give it to, gave it to people, and then there was more than enough. See, when you talk about the gift of giving not as oh yes, little charitable donations because I've got so much. That all of a sudden reduces it to a very small percentage, perhaps 1% or 2%. (laughs) But when you talk about it as sharing, then all of a sudden that's all of us. What do we have that we can share? What do we have in our lives, in our homes that we can say, look, this isn't much, but you want to join me in this or you want to go with us here or you want to... These three gifts that Paul's beginning to list here in Romans 12, the first three in these verses we read focus on the what, what the gifts are. But these last three, Paul, Paul adds a how. He says, not just what, but let me tell you how these gifts are to be exercised or, or used. And he says, the one who shares, you know, we read it in generosity, but that word has a few shades of meaning. It it actually, putting them all together, you could say he's saying giving with simplicity, generosity, and intentionality. Now think about this. This word, when it's normally used, tends to speak of simplicity. And that's maybe an encouragement that all of us can share simply. You don't have to say, well, I don't have, I mean, what what am I going to do? Like, I'm going to give him, I'm going to buy him a Starbucks. I mean, for all that he needs, that's what I'm going to do? Like you see somebody in the side of the road, you're like, well, I mean, what, I'm going to give him a value meal? I mean, like, that's going to help. But maybe sharing with simplicity is part of this. Often when this word is used in the context of giving, the meaning kind of shades over into generosity. And so this is the, this is the attitude of the heart. This is the thing that says, okay, look, it, it may not be much, but it's not going to be just mine. This is the problem with an individualistic Modern society where we've convinced ourselves that everything is yours. <laughs> it's not, is it? I was talking with my father in law, who is a very conservative farmer, but even he was getting a little uh, aggravated with some of the rhetoric of some people around him who were trying to say, uh, oh, you know, look, that everything we have, we got for ourselves. And, and my, my father in law, the farmer, says, Really? What about farm subsidies? What about the road you drove on to go to school? Did you, did you build that road? What about the school? Did you, did you build that school? What about your degree at the state university? Did, did, did you build that university? Do you pay those professors? Now, set politics aside for a minute. Christians should not be trapped in this me-mine sort of thinking. Because even the words of the prayer Jesus taught us to pray don't Say my or me in them. Did you know that? What do they say? Our. And when you pray, give us this day our daily bread. It's our so that even when you have bread on your table, you're thinking about those who don't. Because the people of God don't think in privatized language. We think in generous language. In sharing language. In language that says... Yeah, I mean, this isn't much, but it's not exclusively mine. It's ours. Sure. I I find that a lot of times when we think about giving, or even giving with generosity, uh, we're okay with those first two words, simplicity, generosity, but intentionality is usually the one that kind of takes a hit because most of us have some sort of a dialogue in our mind that goes like this. If, then. If this job comes through, then... I will give or share. Or if I retire the way I want to retire, then I will do this. And, and really, the logic in our culture says to us, if, then. But the logic of grace says, since, then. The logic of grace says, since you have been given every good gift, then share it with everybody else. Since freely you have received Freely give, or maybe even since then. In this way, since you've determined to give, then make plans to give. Since you've determined, I heard a story this week of a family who, all through the calendar year, they have a little jar where they they put spare change in. So someone comes back, empties their pockets, and they and they fill it up. And by Christmas time last year, the jar was three hundred dollars. That's a lot of loose change. Someone needs to talk to you about budgeting, man. No. <laughs> but this family determined that that jar was going to be an unexpected blessing that they would give to somebody during Christmas season, the Christmas season. Now you say, well, most of us arrive at Christmas season and we think, oh, I would love to give. I just don't have anything. Again, if, then. If I had enough, then I would give. But the logic of grace says since, then. Since you've already decided to give, then you're going to set aside for it. And it could be as simple as a loose change jar. What can we share? What can we be intentional with? Moving along here in the rest of verse 8, Paul says, And the one who leads with zeal. Now, this word we talked last week about exhortation and how exhortation is really the gift that we think of when we think of leadership, the inspiring leader, um, Potentially what was not present on the Broncos sideline with 30 seconds and two timeouts. From it. Don't make me relive it. Okay, uh, but, but that's on the podcast last week. But this kind of leadership is not inspirational leadership. This kind of leadership is the one who pres- presides, the one who oversees, the one who kind of looks at things that are under his care or her care and says, you know what, I, I think we need this and I think we need that. Most likely it's referring to those in leadership of the church, but really it could, it could show up in many different areas. And then Paul's little adverb phrase here of how to do this, he says, with zeal. And that word means this, it means with a commitment and a concern for others. In fact, the other, in the other Greek literature around this time that this phrase shows up in, it shows up in civic duties. It shows up of a person who's an outstanding citizen who has extraordinary commitment to civic and religious responsibilities and the concern for personal moral excellence and a devotion to the interests of others. I mean, this is kind of like your ideal civil servant publicly. This is what we think of. Someone who's devoted, who's got strong character, and who's really interested in in the interests and needs of others. How does this show up in church? Uh, Interestingly enough... (laughs) Sometimes the people who go around parading as leaders or self proclaimed leaders are not usually the ones who are. Have you noticed that? There's an old Margaret Thatcher quote who said, Being a leader is like being a lady. If you have to tell someone that you are, then you aren't. <laughs> now, she, of course, means lady in the manners sort of English way. I, I-, I think um, oftentimes the people who go around and start, you know, bossing and giving instructions and sort of take over are not usually the ones in whom this grace is at work. You know how, how I see this at work? I see this often in people who, they walk into a situation and they sit back and, and see if other leaders are going to arise. And they see, is someone taking care of that? Is someone doing that? And then after a little while of observing, they say, you know what? There's a couple of gaps here. Can I help? And, and you say, well, yeah, sure, well, I think you can help. And then all of a sudden you realize, I shouldn't just have them help. I should have them oversee because there, there's something at work in them this way. The person, I think, in, in our congregation that has done this for us is Jim Cole. And Jim's sitting right here. Many of you know Jim and Martha. And Jim is, he, he's like a leadership coach for a living, you know. And I didn't really know that. But he started serving. He's serving on our welcome team and he's getting bulletins together. And then he, we we have breakfast, and he says, hey, you know, Glenn, I, I'm noticing as we move to Palmer here, uh, there's a lot of systems that need to be in place." I'm like, "I know, I love systems. We got to get some systems, you know." And uh, what? Why are you laughing at me? And uh, and he says, "Well, well, well, who's you know who's who, who's doing that?" I said, well, I think you know, I think uh, I've asked the different team leaders to come up with systems, and it's okay, great. And then a month later, or maybe several weeks later, we realized that the systems aren't really being developed, so to say, and, and we're working harder, not smarter, you know, and so, so Jim says, well, well, maybe somebody, this is how delicate, maybe somebody could help you, because I'm sure you have a lot of things to attend, maybe somebody could help you give thought to the different systems here, you know, I said, hmm, who could that somebody be? Jim, <laughs> would you help, and so Jim says, yes, sure. Next thing I know, a month or so later, Every team has like a binder with like a checklist and like sheet protectors that say what needs to be done where so that if the team leader's not there then everybody knows by golly how it's supposed to work. And our team leaders, several of them had already started this in process and Jim was facilitating, but this is it. The person who's functioning in the gift of leadership doesn't just take over, but they allow other leaders to rise and then they fill in the gaps. That's I think how it works. But... What I, what I also think of when I think of church is it shows whether or not you have ownership of this together by how we talk about church. Now, I was giving someone a hard time about this this week, so don't take this personally because it's not about you. It's just about the discussion, okay? But, but sometimes we tend to talk about church in second person or third person. And for those who are struggling to remember what that is in grammar, uh, <laughs> that's you or they. Or, you know, sort of, yeah, hey, when are you going to do this? And I always like to say, do you mean when are we going to do this? Or someone, someone says it in third person. Well, well, they don't have good signs for their parking lots. You, you mean we? Because once you start thinking of your church as we, guess what begins to happen? You start to see the gaps and think, well, well maybe I can help with that. Well, maybe I can address that instead of, well, you know, they don't do a a good job greeting people or they don't, you know, they don't have any coffee or they don't. How can we make this better? That's what I love to see. That's when the grace of God is really beginning to rise up in us and say, I'm not talking like they're the leader. I'm talking like we own this because you do. Because we are members of one another. right. the third one. Mercy. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The one who does acts of mercy, comma, with cheerfulness. Let her do it with cheerfulness. Let him do it with cheerfulness. So mercy, the one who shows mercy. I think this is interesting because several of the commentaries said, look, acts of mercy probably refer to things like visiting the sick, caring for the elderly or, or disabled, and things that you think of when you put yourself in somebody else's shoes and kind of enter into their situation with them. Do you know what else is interesting? Is this phrase, the one, showing mercy, is used in the New Testament, but always about God. And this is the only time when it's used of a human being, of a person. Remember, a spiritual gift, when you do them, it shows people Jesus. You think there's some connection in here that when we are able to show mercy... What people see is, whoa, dude, only God acts like that. And you're like, yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, no, no just sort of altruistic, benevolent person would do the things you're doing. You're going above and beyond, right? You're showing mercy in an extraordinary way. Why? Because that's what Jesus does. Mercy, I think, is interesting that Paul's even wording of it here. Acts of mercy. Mercy here is not a feeling. It's not an emotion that kind of rises up in you says, "I just have so much mercy for you." But I can't really do anything about it. Mercy here says, "I'm going to put myself in your shoes and I see it and I feel it, but man, I'm going to rise beyond that and move towards you to help." I think it's interesting that Paul adds this adverb and says, "Okay, but 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 how show mercy with cheerfulness?" Cheerfulness, wholeheartedness, graciousness. All of these are words that go along with this. Wholeheartedness, graciousness, cheerfulness. I have one older sister. She's three years older than me. And she's a pretty brilliant psychologist. And she, she and her husband were in the UK for 12 or 13 years. And, and uh, she won like this award for social scientist of the year under 50 or whatever a couple years ago and now she's they're, they're back in the states and and um and, and, and um anyway enough about all that but um... she's brilliant but she did this little video interview on a news network that i saw earlier this week talking about what happens even chemically in our brain when we begin to show mercy or serve or help and uh, it, it actually releases the same sort of uh, chemical that you get when you eat chocolate who knew I know, but, but without the calories, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and in, in fact, psychologists call it the helper's high. And you begin to serve and help, and then all of a sudden, the dopamine goes to your, your brain, and you have this this high that comes from, from showing mercy. Isn't that amazing? And what's, what's even remarkable is there's a separate study that shows that your body actually knows the difference in motive. That those who, and again... You be careful with studies because correlation, not the same thing as causal relation. I get that, okay. But 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 they found that, that even in those who um, who helped just for selfish reasons, it didn't have as much physical benefits, but those who helped out of a genuine desire to help ended up living longer. Isn't that interesting? Could it be that God made us to be this way, that when we begin to show mercy, not only are we showing mercy with cheerfulness but we become cheerful because we've been showing mercy. Imagine that. Several years ago, there was a biography written of Mother Teresa called Come Be My Light, and it was controversial because they used portions of her diaries and journals to talk about um, her life in Calcutta and the way that she served and showed mercy. And What they discovered from her diary entries was that um, for many, many decades—30 decades or more—basically her whole time in India, uh, the Mother Teresa was very down. Uh, in fact, there's been this debate where some have said, "Is this what you could call a kind of clinical depression?" Even other people uh, in the Catholic the- theological circle said, "No, this is what Catholics have called the dark night of the soul." And actually, it's, it's a very—it's uh, an honor to go through these um, dark periods because it, it means you're identifying with Christ and. I think what's remarkable, whatever the, 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 the true answer is of, of her darkness or what contributed to this dark cloud over her life, and the remarkable thing was the way that she kept serving. Often I think we, we tend to say, well, maybe I will wait until I'm in this place of cheerfulness and then I'll show mercy. Then I can think about someone else. I wonder if the mystery of the gospel is that God says, no, I've poured out my grace on you. But you'll begin to see it as you step out and serve and show mercy. And all of a sudden, as you begin to show mercy, something begins to take place. And and she found, she did indeed find the strength to keep serving year after year after year after year. It's a remarkable story when you think about it. So here we are at the end of this. We've talked about prophecy. We've talked about... A teaching we've talked about an exhortation we've talked about uh, um, um i can't remember the other one we've talked about you know all of these three today and and um you say okay great now what now what do we do or maybe you're kind of saying all right well well hey glenn this is cute and i appreciate the challenge but i just don't know that it matters that much paul says in 1 corinthians 14 pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts why 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 would Paul say this? Earnestly pursue love. And then as you desire to love, eagerly, earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Because it's meaningless to say to someone, oh, I just love you, but I'm not really going to cooperate with God's grace in my life to actually bless you. Isn't that true? It's one thing to sort of say, well, I just, I love my church. I've got the first person pronoun down. I love my, my church. But I don't know about eagerly desiring spiritual gifts because uh, I understand it can be intimidating. But I want to tell you that there is a place for a kind of holy ambition. There is a kind of place for a, a godly drive to say, alright, well then let's do something together. John Stott, I've been reading a biography on his life and this was a quote from a book that he had written Uh, uh, you know earlier in his ministry and he says this he says ambitions for God if they are to be worthy can never be modest there is something inherently inappropriate about cherishing small ambitions for God how can we ever be content that he should acquire just a little more honor in the world and then he says Christians should be eager to develop their gifts echoing the words of Paul widen their opportunities, extend their influence, and be given promotion in their work, not now to boost their own ego and build their own empire, but rather through everything they do to bring glory to God. Amen? Sometimes, church, you call it humility, but it's really passivity. Can I say that? Sometimes we say, oh no, I'm just being humble. I don't need to do that. I don't need to help. I don't need to be in the limelight. And really, it's not humility, it's passiveness. It's saying, I don't know if I want to develop my spiritual gifts. You guys got it covered, and you guys do such a great job. You guys? You mean we? (laughs) You know, it's interesting, as I've thought about this series, the New Testament doesn't seem very preoccupied with teaching us how to discover our gifts. Have you ever noticed that? To, to get to the question that was emailed to, to me this week, well, Glenn, this is so good, but how do I know what my gift is? I mean, Paul gives these lists every once in a while, but he doesn't say. Now, listen, if you want to know which one you have, he doesn't walk us through it. And I'm not mocking spiritual gift assessment tests and all those tools. Maybe great tools. They're they're probably very helpful. But do you know why I think the New Testament is not preoccupied with the question of what your gift is? Are you ready? Number one, because I think that any of these gifts can show up in you when you're in the situation that requires it. Now, do I think there's some that are going to be more primary in you, that you've developed more and you sort of, if you, yeah, sure. But it could be that it's because all of these gifts belong to the same Holy Spirit who's in all of you. And so this is a way of God saying, look. Don't get hung up on this and that, and I'm this, and I'm not that, and I will never stack chairs because I'm a teacher, and I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm not really called a children's ministry. I've never really heard God say that. I'm just more of an exhorter, and you... oh, because children can't be exhorted. <laughs> <laughs> this is the problem with again our individualistic contemporary society. this says, "Oh, tell me what I am, so that I can lock myself up in this sort of airtight." Comm- no, 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 no. The Holy Spirit is living and dynamic and wants to let things rise up in you when they are needed. But that leads to number two. I think the way this works is you've got to step out. Most of us are saying, well, I want to discover my gift and then once I know my gift, tell me of the need, Pastor. And then when I hear a need that matches my gift, That'll never translate on the podcast. (laughs) My apologies. But I think it's the reverse. I think what happens is we say, Oh God, let your grace change my heart. See, grace is the fountain, gifts are the overflow. Grace is the fountain, gifts are the overflow. So what begins to happen is you come to Christ and you say, Jesus, I've got nothing to offer you, but I surrender all. And Jesus says, thank you, I'll take it and I'll give you my life in place of your wretchedness. I'll give you my righteousness in place of your mistakes. I'll give you my spirit instead of your measly little human talent." And then you say, thank you, God. And then you say, God, let your grace not only be the thing that saves me, but let your grace be the thing that changes me. And all of a sudden you realize you've got new eyes now because grace is changing you. And so you walk by a a person on the street who's homeless or you walk by a need in the church or you walk by a person who's discouraged and you no longer have this tunnel vision thing, but grace is changing your heart. And all of a sudden you're seeing needs that you didn't used to see. And you're seeing hurting people that you didn't used to notice. And you're seeing opportunities to serve and to encourage and to bless that you didn't used to see. And then you say, okay, God, okay, God, your grace is saving me. Your grace is changing me. Now would your grace rise up and gift me to meet this need? Does that make sense? So don't sit in your corner and say, okay, God, reveal to me my gift. I'm still waiting. Dear God, oh God, why won't you gift me? Instead, say, God, give me eyes to see needs. And then say, All right, God, uh, I'm going to step out and try to meet the. Would your grace rise up in me to all of a sudden be more than enough for this person? And do you know what happens every time? It does. It does. Over and over and over again. I can't tell you how many times you'd be talking with a person and you say, oh God, I really want to say something to, or do something to help them out. I know a family in the church who took in a family who was, uh, who's, who's been homeless. A woman's about to give birth. And I know a family in the church who said, you know, you know what? Ah, maybe we could... It makes you do extraordinary things. It makes you step out in ways. I talked last week about Brandon and Chris and Jen and all the guys and gals who help unload and load the truck each week. They they weren't sitting in church and all of a sudden God said, your spiritual gift is truck unloading. (laughs) Thanks God. I was hoping for prophecy, but I'll take it. (laughs) Instead what happened is they said, grace has begun to change their eyes and they saw a need said, I'll step out when <laughs> something rises up new. what I want to challenge you this morning and the reason we have this serve table in the lobby this morning is I hope for every one of you to go see Brooke at the table after service every one of you pick up a flyer talk to Brooks it lists all the different teams here why because listen We can't expect God to let His grace flow through us to reach the masses when we won't start here. You can't expect that. And young people in particular, this is a challenge to you because we are the most guilty of saying, someday God, I'm going to do something about that. And there is a great hypocrisy in that. That says, I care deeply about this and that and I want to stop human trafficking they need people to teach children? No, I mean, that's not, I'm not, that's not my gift. There's a great hypocrisy in that. Because God's grace will not flow out of you in the grand ways you imagine if you aren't stepping out in the small, faithful ways right here and now. And there are needs. Our children's ministry, praise God, last week we had over 75 kids. The teachers were like, do you know, they didn't know what to do. We need more classrooms. Today, we've opened up a separate classroom for third through fifth graders. In a month, there'll be a youth ministry, sixth through twelfth, that launches. There's lots of places to say, I, I think I, I, God uses me to teach, but I've, I've never really stepped out and tried it. Maybe I could work with teaching children or youth or leading a group. Or, yeah, you could. And pray about that. But grace is the fountain, gifts are the overflow, Jesus is the source. See, I would be remiss if I went through this whole series and each week did not remind you of this. Because Jesus is the source. We talked last week about how every gift can become distorted if disconnected from Jesus the source, right? How can um, giving or sharing be be, be, uh, tainted, well, once it's disconnected from Jesus, the source, all of a sudden you, your giving starts to become begrudging. And you say, well, where's the reciprocity, man? I thought if we had them over for dinner, they would have us over for dinner. <laughs> where's the love? I don't know if I can share with generosity anymore. But see, when you're connected to Jesus as the source, the fountain of grace keeps overflowing. And you're able to say, I don't, I don't know, I think give back, great, but I just want to share. Freely I receive. Freely I give. Um, what was our second one today? Leadership. Leadership can, disconnected from Jesus, can all of a sudden become bossy and manipulative. But all of a sudden, when it's connected to Jesus, the source, you're remembering, how did Jesus serve? He served by washing feet. Okay, make me that kind of a leader. The gift of mercy, showing mercy. That can quickly become this thing of like, feeling taken advantage of, walked all over, well, I'm showing mercy and showing mercy, and they never change, back to the same stakes, yeah, how do you think God feels, <laughs> yeah, sorry, <laughs> but connected to the source, and all of a sudden you say, oh God, thank you, that you are abounding in mercy toward me, now let that mercy flow out to us. See, grace is the fountain, gifts are the overflow. Jesus is the source. Jesus is the only way this works. This is not a self-help talk. This is not a make yourself better. This is not an inspirational, motivational talk to say, go out and let's be a great church. This is a talk that calls us back to Jesus. It says, listen, everything in Romans up to chapter 12, Paul's been laying the foundation to say it's Jesus It's Jesus when you couldn't be good enough. It's Jesus after you come to Him. It's Jesus who defines you. It's Jesus who empowers you to serve. It's Jesus that you're representing. It's Jesus who will get the glory now from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. That's how Romans 11 ends. It's Jesus. And so this morning I want us to come to Jesus. Come to His table. And to begin by saying, God, I really want to step out. I really want to sort of see your grace come alive in me as I serve others. But God, I need to confess that I, that's not the natural bent of my heart. Do you know what? That's not the natural inclination of your life. The natural bent of my heart is selfishness. It's yours too. Sorry. First the bad news, then the good news. It's the natural bent of your heart too. But The good news is, Jesus says, let me give you a new heart. Let me fill you with my spirit. Let me cause this to overflow in you so that all the world would know and glorify God. Amen? Let's pray this morning. Would you take a moment and just quietly, right where you are, begin to talk to God and confess to Him your, your weakness and to say, God, I forgive me for being timid or forgive me for being um, um, uh, selfish or... Begin to pray and call on His name.